I'm Brian Hubbard. And I'm Lynn McTaggart. And welcome this to our latest podcast and vlogcast. And what an opportune moment to uh, record one, Lynn, because the May issue is about to hit the stores in the US and the UK. Um, so, Lynn, tell us a bit about what's going to be in this issue. Okay, for anyone who has never seen this before, this is What Doctors Don't Tell You. And we're a magazine as well as a vlogcast and podcast. And this issue is really fabulous because it really debunks the idea that there is such a thing primarily as hips that have wear and tear. Um, what it demonstrates is that most pain that we relate to hips is caused by a muscle imbalance. And we have a special doctor who has treated thousands of patients and got them out of pain just by giving them a few exercises. Now, aside from that, that's not the only thing in this issue. We also have an amazing story about how essential oils are killing chronic Lyme disease, something that even antibiotics can't do, um, the truth about 5G, the one of the worst chemicals in your home, which are called VOCs and what to do about them, and um, exercises to keep your brain sharp, and many, many other things, too. So check out this issue, which has just hit the stands. That looks really good, Lynn. And, of course, if you can't see it around on your local store shelves, do subscribe. And you can do so via our website, which is wddty.com, and just follow the buttons to subscribe. And we'll get every next 12 issues every month to your front door in plenty of time. So that's the thing to do. Thanks, Lynn. Thank you. Well, heart disease still is the world's number one killer. And the prevailing theory has it that uh, cholesterol builds in our arteries and furs them up until blood can't get through, eventually causing a heart attack. And um, several ways of controlling this. One is diet, the belief that um, a lot of the fats come from fatty foods. Uh, so controlling it through low-fat diets. But the standard medical approach is to take statin drugs. The problem is that statin drugs are quite hard for people to tolerate, and they often cause muscle weakness and a whole range of problems, which means that people can't stay on the drugs for more than a couple of months. A secondary reason um, is that there's been a growing uh, band of people called uh, cholesterol skeptics who don't believe that cholesterol have anything to do with heart disease at all. And um, as a result of all this, statin drug prescriptions have been falling, or more to the point, people taking them have uh, dropped off a bit. And there's been a whole backlash against this of late. And one national newspaper in the UK a couple of weekends ago said there was even a, a special place in hell for cholesterol sceptics. Interestingly, those same sceptics had been at the House of uh, Commons in the UK three days earlier, talking to politicians about heart disease and different ways of treating it. 
Now, what's come out since then is very interesting because there's been a study by the University of Nottingham which says that statin drugs are only working in half the people who are actually taking them. Despite this, statin manufacturers are looking forward to revenues next year, which will be touching $1 trillion. And that's for a drug that works for only half the time. But what the researchers have discovered is that the drugs are lowering the so-called bad LDL cholesterol to levels that they would expect in only half the patients, even after they've been taking the drugs for two years. So um, they they actually did a review of 165,000 heart patients all taking the drugs and discovered that 84,000 of them weren't seeing any big decline in their LDL cholesterol levels, certainly not the 40% reduction that the drugs promise. Now, there are sort of two schools of thoughts here. One is that um, it doesn't matter because cholesterol is not the problem anyway. But even if it is, the way of treating cholesterol isn't working. That, you know, statins just aren't doing the job. And yet, despite this, you know, we've got uh, drug companies, we've got journalists, health authorities, you name it, carry on pushing a drug that doesn't work and filling the coffers of the drug manufacturers whilst they're about it. I know you've got a lot to say about this, Lynn. So without further ado, what do you reckon? Well, you know, bad ideas die hard, Brian. Mm. And one of the ideas that seems to have eternal life is the cholesterol theory. Now, this all started, I think it was back in the 50s, when a researcher called Ansel Keys um, claimed to have studied um, comprehensively seven countries and conclusively demonstrating that a high-fat diet led to high cholesterol levels, which in turn caused heart disease. And this, this essentially launched the cholesterol theory of heart disease. The problem is, this theory has literally never been proven. And it's shocking when you look at the big studies that have been carried out over time to try to demonstrate this. For instance, the National Institutes of Health, um, they did a study of about 9,000 patients. And this was the largest study ever at the time, looking at diet, cholesterol, and heart disease. And they gave the uh, half the group a heart-healthy diet, which includes, included um, vegetable oils rather than things like butter. And they found that they actually turned out, those heart-healthy patients actually turned out to have a higher incidence of heart disease. So this study was file-drawered for years and years and was only discovered um, you know, many years later uh, to have been false. Meanwhile, it had been published in 1989, but all of that demonstration that the stuff, that it isn't cholesterol, had all been massaged away. And similarly, we've had studies over time, more and more studies, um, big, rigorous studies in the UK looked at recently <clears throat> of about 1,200 patients on vegetable oils versus 1,200 on, on just normal diets, and they found there was not one life saved mm. on the heart-healthy diet. Mm. You know, and even Ansel Keys 
I mean, by 2014, Time magazine uh, was calling him essentially a, a fraud, because, mm. or his ideas of fraud, mm. because uh, they found that, you know, there, uh, that he had cherry-picked the seven countries that demonstrated, that validated his theory, and ignored countries like France, which has a high-fat diet, but a very low incidence of heart disease, that would have debunked it. So it's never been demonstrated to work, but it is a, a money deal. Now, the whole cholesterol industry is enormous. Mm. I mean, as you say, it's a drug, a giant drug industry, and it's also a giant food industry of low-fat diet. Mm. So nobody's going to say the emperor has no clothes. No, certainly not journalists, I'm afraid, who seem to be very much in the pockets of uh, Big Pharma. But, you know, and it comes back to this old business, isn't it, of money talks. And unfortunately, in medicine, money screams. <laughs> and when you're talking about $1 trillion a year revenues, that's an awful lot that they don't want to lose. Mm -hmm. So as you say, Lynn, it's not a theory that's going to go away anytime soon. No, even though it's completely false. Mm. Thanks, Lynn. Talking of drugs that don't work, the seasonal flu vaccine doesn't work either. Even in the best years, it's only effective in 40% of cases. So that's not a very impressive uh, hit rate, I would say. But now the researchers have discovered that it can be even less effective in people who take, or rather eat, processed fast foods. And there's, there's a special additive in the foods. Um, I'm not going to say exactly what it is because it's too, too tongue-twisting, but it's TBHQ, which, <laughs> which hampers the immune response and renders the flu vaccine even less effective than it was before. Because, you know, the, the vaccines are supposed to work in liaison with the immune system, and one is meant to uh, kickstart the other. And it, when it comes to people on fast food diets, apparently the immune system is so suppressed that it's not responding when the vaccine is 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 administered, and so um, all the standards uh, uh, culprits uh, have been fingered by researchers. So it's the chips and crackers and frozen foods and the cakes and you name it, all the things that people love to eat, especially kids, Lynn. Um, rendering the flu vaccine virtually ineffective. Um, so yeah, a bit of a worry there because so many people do uh, eat these foods and so many of these similar people also are in line for the flu shot each time. So a, a complete waste of time. Either, either the, the diet or the vaccine has to, uh, has to go, it seems. This is a really interesting study when you think of the enormous implications. Now, remember, the study just focused on the flu vaccine. But suppose that's also the case for other vaccines. Who are the biggest consumers of this kind of fast food? Well, mm. one of the biggest populations that eat this stuff regularly are Western kids. Mm. So these are also the biggest consumers of vaccines, the ones that are given most of the vaccines, multiple vaccines over their lives. So the big question is, when we have an outbreak, 
of a particular disease, like we are having with measles at the moment, this is being blamed on the unvaccinated who are suddenly spreading this disease. But first of all, we know from an earlier podcast, we talked about it, about a third of these measles cases are actually reactions to the vaccine. But what about the rest of the two-thirds? Are they just people who, whose immune systems didn't pick up the measles vaccine? Maybe it wasn't, you know, it wasn't effective because they're kids who eat a lot of junk food. So we really have to look at all of that and sit back and do some dispassionate research to find out how well these things work and what causes them not to work so well before we start talking about the vaccines as being perfectly safe, perfectly effective, and the big problem being the anti-vaxxers. And it seems to be sort of looking at the wrong end of the telescope, isn't it, really? Because really what we should all be talking about, or certainly health authorities who worth their pennies worth of, uh, of public gruel, would be urging people to improve their immune systems through better nutrition, because that's the natural defence against any viral or even bacterial attack. And that's surely where the focus should be rather than doing this um, this fake sort of protective thing, a vaccine or whatever it might be, um, which which only works partially part of the time as we see with the flu shot and doesn't work totally effectively with the MMR or any other shot because a vaccine can't. But, you know, the, a perfectly working immune system, well-fed, well-nourished, is the perfect solution and renders all these things relatively benign. And surely that's where the focus needs to be. Yes. And the other focus, it goes without saying, is to at least ask the questions. Do these things actually work? Mm. I mean, we've got to the point in the media and with um, health authorities where it is just assumed that they work and they work perfectly. It's just like statins. Until we start asking the questions, we're not going to get the answers. Mm. Thanks, Dave. You know, we said before in the podcast, you know, suspect your gut. And if it ain't your gut, it's your gums, you know, as the first places to look if you have a chronic health problem. And, you know, this has been underlined in a, in a new research study that reckons that Alzheimer's disease, rheumatoid arthritis and a form of pneumonia all begin in the gums or in particular in infected gums, more to the point, gums that are bleeding and not being cared for, which are releasing bacteria into the body and going up, in the case of Alzheimer's patients, to the brain. And it's passing the, passing the barrier of the brain in, and, and affecting the brain. And they, the researchers uh, know this is the case because they've had a look at uh, brain sections of Alzheimer's patients, and lo and behold, there they've seen the bacteria that normally resides in, in gums, actually in the brains of the, the poor sufferers of, of Alzheimer's. And um, they say it also is a, a, a reason why people get rheumatoid arthritis. And it's also, as I say, the special form of uh, influenza called, uh, or rather, aspiration pneumonia, I beg your pardon, which is a lung infection from inhaling food or saliva so you know it just seems that um 
come back to this ideal in, I suppose, of holistic uh, medicine, where you have to look at the whole body in every sense of the word. And we could go further than I'm saying today, but, you know, that uh, someone who's treating Alzheimer's needs to look at the gums as much as anywhere else to, to understand uh, why this is happening. Well, I think that's the real key piece of it, as mm. you say. Just as we're learning that the gut is, you know, the cause of so many distant and seemingly unrelated illnesses, mm. the same thing happens with the gut, the gums. And unless you, as a doctor, can look at people in an integrative fashion and um, examine them holistically, as you say, then you're really likely to try to just treat them piecemeal and not get at the root of the problems, par pardon the pun. Hmm. But this is the other issue with medicine, with conventional medicine. It has become ever more specialized so that people outside their own specialty have a hard time recognizing other types of causes. Hmm. Yeah, and, and I, I don't see that ever improving because, as you say, medicine is becoming ever more specialized. And who would have thunk that it was actually gum disease that caused Alzheimer's? Absolutely. Mm. Well, hopefully maybe some holistic dentists. Well, yeah, there we go. Okay. Thanks, Lynn. Well, the good news is e-cigarettes or vaping are better for you than cigarettes. The bad news is that e-cigarettes or vaping aren't very good for you anyway. And a new re report has sort of underlined this. They reckon that they significantly uh, increase the risk for heart attack, coronary artery disease, dep and depression. So um, they reckon that e-cigarette smokers are 56% more likely to have a heart attack and have a 30% greater chance of suffering a stroke than a non-smoker. Not, than, not, not compared to a cigarette smoker, but compared to a non-smoker. So the risk is still quite significant. They're also 44% more likely to suffer circulatory problems, including blood clots, and even depression and anxiety, which is quite an interesting one. Um, interestingly, the um, tobacco users, on the other hand, by comparison, run a 165% risk of a heart attack and a 94% chance of developing heart disease. So obviously that's even more uh, dangerous than vaping. But, you know, it's quite, uh, quite telling because I think a lot of people felt, well, you know, vaping, that's a very, very reasonable way of, of, of cutting my health risk. And to a degree, it does. But really, it's still a very, very dangerous thing to do. And um, as the researchers said, you know, vaping is not safe by any means, only safer. And, you know, I think uh, the, the key really is to stop altogether. And you actually were, a, you know about a program for stopping smoking, didn't you, Lynn? I was a smoker in my 20s <gasps> and a big smoker. The biggest shock on this podcast ever. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I quit through a really amazing course given by the American Cancer Society. And I mean, I was a heavy smoker, a couple pack mm. a day or mm. as many of my friends were at the time, we were all big smokers. And um, it was a, a brilliant program because it was 
almost like what AA is for drinkers, it was for smokers. Mm. And it just gave you a buddy system and slowly weaned you off cigarettes over a six-week period. Mm. So it was brilliant. But I did want to talk about um, e-cigarettes too, which is, it's not just the idea that you're not inhaling actual smoke. You're inhaling chemicals. That's the problem. All of those, however many flavors there are, and there's hundreds of them. According to this report, 7,000, Lynn. Yeah, there are 7,000 flavors. Now, you know, fruit flavors, minty flavors, all kinds of flavors. Remember, they're all chemical flavors, and you're inhaling that stuff. So you're inhaling a chemical. The other problem with them is the device itself, which is unstable and has been known to blow up, you know, blowing up in people's mouths. So as you say, the best idea is, you know, learn to breathe uh, rather than learn to smoke. And there are good programs like the American Cancer Society's program. I hope it's still going. It was brilliant. Was it the one that you used? That was. It was a brilliant and it had a wonderful, it had an amazing, amazing track record. And for me, I was able to quit very easily after those six weeks and never smoked again. Amazing. Well, well worth it, Lynn. Um, Better even than vaping. (laughs) Thanks, Lynn. Well, we all know that Western medicine is dangerous and keen-eared listeners to our podcast will also know that it's the fourth major killer in the West. And that's of drugs that are properly administered. And that's just the stuff we know about, and an awful lot never gets reported anyway. And um, yeah, we don't know really the number of deaths when it comes to you know, hospital, surgery, and all the rest. We have no idea really of the, the total body count, but it is enormous. Well, they've now discovered there's another reason why people are dying. They've put a figure on this as well. About 100,000 Americans alone, so that multiply that across the world, are dying each year because of an infection they've directly caught from their doctor. And uh, the doctor, and it's all happened because the doctor hasn't done a basic thing that we tell our three-year-olds to do, Lynn, and that's wash your hands. So doctors aren't washing their hands. And as I say, as a result, they're infecting about 100,000 people in America alone with a fatal uh, infection. Um, Most of them do happen in hospital, which is probably not that surprising. About 75,000 patients die in a U.S. hospital every year from an infection from a doctor or nursing staff. Uh, Overall, 722,000 hospital patients actually pick up an infection from the staff in the U.S. every year. So it's around around one in every 25 patients in hospital pick up an infection from a hospital staff member. I mean, it's absolutely extraordinary. And most of this could so easily be prevented, say the researchers, if people did wash their hands, which it seems they're not doing, even after they've been in what is known as a dirty environment, and they're just going into a clean environment and carry on sort of handling patients and passing on these diseases. And, um, you know, even if people wore surgical gloves, it would be a start 
the, the researchers say, but you know, absolutely astonishing, isn't it? That they still have a... I mean, this was, I think, the idea of washing your hands in a hospital setting, I, thought, I think was first mooted about 1850. Yeah. And one of the first principles of, of hospital care, wash your hands. I mean, it's not difficult to do. You know, we wash our hands before we do anything, that we normally as, as basic human beings. But the idea that the, these doctors are not, and as a result, killing 100,000 people in America alone is absolutely staggering. It is staggering. And what's really worrying is, as you say, this was something that was discovered in around the mid-19th uh, century, they suddenly realized that they could really reduce the incidence of deaths after surgery if the doctors washed their hands and changed their coats, because they used to walk around with bloody coats on, you know, from going from one patient to the next. And it suddenly occurred to them that a sterile um, environment might be better for the patient. Mm. But now we have such a, a resurgence of, um, of antibiotic-resistant bacteria in hospital. Hospitals are absolutely rife with MRSA, mm. the antibiotic-resistant bacteria that can be a killer. And when you have a sick patient who is immune-compromised in some way, a bug like that and it being passed by the doctor who is doing all kinds of intimate examinations, you've got a recipe for disaster and well, death. One of our own columnists, wasn't it, Dr. Harold Geyer, went mm. to hospital twice and on two occasions contracted MRSA. Yeah, and he, <laughs> you know, luckily he was able to bring in um, a herb, being a herbalist, he knew that berberis and other herbs, tinctures can kill this stuff. And he had that brought in and he killed it twice. But none of the antibiotics he was being given were were effective. Were effective. No. So yeah, he's you know he could do with a third operation. Doesn't want to go near a hospital. So mm. and I we, I know several friends who I think died of MRSA. They went mm. in for benign operations and never came out. Mm. And that could have been given to them by hospital staff or yeah some other means. Quite extraordinary. All Absolutely. Right. Mm. Thanks, Lynn. I suppose of all the diseases, Alzheimer's must be the scariest. I think it's the one where you feel like you're losing somebody, their essential self, even though they're still there. And, you know, once it seems to take a hold, medicine really doesn't have any answers to it at all. And uh, the drugs they've trialled over the last 15 years, I think, have all come to naught. They haven't worked very well, except in the very earliest stages of the disease. And, um, you know, an earlier session of this podcast talked about gum disease being uh, one of the possible causes of Alzheimer's. But as ever, you know, the underlying thing we always come up with is that the natural, there are natural remedies for most everything. There seems to be an answer in nature for almost every disease, and that includes Alzheimer's. And uh, a new report, again from researchers, has found that compounds found in green tea tomatoes and carrots are actually reversing Alzheimer's. Now, it must be said that thus far, this research has only been carried out in mice, and we can't be absolutely sure this would transfer to humans. But, you know, start drinking green tea and eating foods rich in ferulic acid, FA, as it's called, 
<laughs> there you go. Researchers don't have a sense of humour. Um, so that's including foods such as carrots, tomatoes, rice, wheat and oats. Um, start taking this right away. If you have early stage Alzheimer's, better yet, if you don't have it and want to make sure you don't get it. Um, and they're saying, you know, interestingly, these researchers are saying that it is a holistic approach that is going to uh, beat Alzheimer's. It's going to be a good diet and plant-based supplements. All these things could well, you know, do the job. And as the researcher said, don't wait 10 or 12 years for a designer drug to come onto the market. You know, the pharmaceutical companies will eventually get a hold of it, add a chemical or free, and flog it for a fortune. But you don't have to wait for them. You can start today just by changing your diet, drinking green tea, eating these foods, carrots, tomatoes, rice, wheat, and oats. And, you know, it's a very good antidote, apparently, to Alzheimer's. And, you know, especially with... 5.7 million Americans today suffering from the disease and not really knowing what they could be doing. Um, it, it, it seems to be such a wonderful breakthrough piece of research, which offers real hope to people, I think. What do you think, Lynn? Absolutely, because none of the drugs to date that have mm. been targeting Alzheimer's have done one bit of good. They just don't work. And when you see that a simple plant-based solution can tackle this stuff, um, it, it does give great hope. Mm. It also makes it affordable and available to everyone. And I think what it also says is we need to investigate as much as possible plant plants and what else they can cure. There's just so much we don't know about some of the so-called incurable illnesses. Which plants are going to really provide a cure for cancer? Because it's not going to be chemotherapy. It's going to be something out there in nature. Mm -hmm. And that's probably true of virtually every chronic condition to which medicine has only a slight answer, it seems to me. Absolutely. But I think what we have to do is just break away from medicine, the idea that drugs are the only solution for everything, when clearly they're not. I mean, and that they are, yes, they can achieve a short-term gain for people if they're in pain or they need something just to just to alleviate the immediate symptoms, but really it's not a long-term answer. No, they haven't been able to find a drug that cures any kind of chronic illness, to be honest. No. I mean, you actually threw that challenge down years ago, didn't you? When you wrote What Does I Tell You, the book, mm -hmm. before you did What Does I Tell You, the film. <laughs> um, and you actually threw down the challenge saying, well, apart from, I think there are about three or four drugs, antihistamines, antibiotics. No, no, there yeah. are, there's only, um, I think, well, my challenge was, mm. if you know of a drug that cures anything, yeah write to me immediately, because try as I might, I can't really think of anything out there besides antibiotics, in some cases now, not in all, that actually cures something. Maybe um, uh, there's a drug for, um, I think it's mouth ulcers or um, the herpes, uh, yeah, mm -hmm. uh, uh, illness on that mm. pops up on your lip oh, that it lip, might yeah. be mm. able to mm. cure. Mm. But I haven't really been able to find any other mm. cures. I find maintenance drugs, but no cures. So if you out there 
know of another thing that actually cures, write to us immediately. Mm. We'd love to hear from you. There's a a challenge. Well, what an exciting journey it's been today, Lynn, discovering that you you used to be a smoker, of course. (laughs) And now your great challenge to the world. Absolutely. Well, I think it's been a fun pack podcast but sadly it has to come to an end so thank you for listening or watching and i'm brian hubbard and we'll catch up with you again next time and i'm lynn mctaggart see you soon Bye.